Every year, tens of thousands of dogs, mostly beagles, are used as tools in deadly research experiments. Join me, your host, Ellie Hansen, as we dive into this issue and talk to all the awesome people out there trying to make a difference for these dogs. Best of all, find out what you can do to help. We're opening doors for discussion and shedding light on the facts. This is Dog Research Exposed. grabbed her and alarms went off throughout the facility. Security trucks were screaming down the highway, but we could not leave Julie behind. We dashed out the back exit. We ran with her through the night and we were terrified she would cry out and alert security to where we were. But Julie did not make a peep. What you just heard is actual footage of a rescue mission from inside Ridgeland Farms located in Wisconsin one of the largest breeders of beagles for experimentation in the United States. With the sound of over 700 beagles barking desperately from their small wire cages at the same time gives you chills of horror, I'm right there with you. It's really hard to feel all the emotions surrounding dog research, but it's equally important not to turn away because it's difficult but to transform feelings of anger and despair for these beagles into action. And that's just what three very courageous people did on the night of April 17, 2017. The team, representing an animal rights organization called Direct Action Everywhere, rescued three beagles that night, Julie, Anna, and Lucy. Now, they're facing felony burglary and felony theft charges. Their trial is happening on March 18th to the 22nd at the Dane County Courthouse in Madison, Wisconsin. This episode includes an exclusive interview with two of the rescue team members, Eva and Paul, as well as Michelle, the International Coordinator for Direct Action Everywhere. The roundtable discussion that follows is uncut and unedited. I'd like to start out by having everyone give a brief introduction, including your name and a little bit about yourself and your work as it relates to getting dogs out of research experimentation. So maybe we'll start with Paul. Sure, thanks. I'm Paul Darwin Picklesheimer. My pronouns are they, them, and I've lived in Berkeley since 2016. I was born and raised in West Virginia, where I was a roofer. And uh, since 2016, I've been out here uh, investigating animal exploitation in general, um, but uh, specifically including, um, you know, dog breeding facilities, well, just Ridgeland, uh, because um, just we, we focus on animals in the food system because they're such a big part of the pie, but we don't want to leave anybody behind. And of course, uh, dogs are such a beloved animal in the United States, uh, despite how they're treated in, in some instances. And uh, I've just helped gather evidence of that. And I would love to see that evidence help uh, push forward progress in terms of legislation or just in this actual um, location closing down. And Michelle. 
Yeah, uh, hi, my name is Michelle Del Cueto. I was born and raised in Mexico City. I basically run the DXC chapter there for various years. And then I moved to Berkeley to pursue my dream with, of organizing full-time with DXC. And I'm DXC's international coordinator. I mentor um, all the chapters around the world and help onboard organizers as well as establish some of our campaigns uh, like Rosa's Law and how, you know, it connects with other chapters. And I'm also a photographer and document a lot of our uh, trials and actions and events happening here in the Bay and um, in other uh, states in the United States. And Eva. Awesome. Um, yeah, thanks for having us on. Really exciting to, to be here. My name's Eva Hamer. I am living in Portland, Oregon right now. Um, I first found DXC when I was living in Chicago back in, gosh, 2015. I started organizing with them as a um, just volunteer organizer in Chicago for a couple of years because I was really just so inspired by um, just the ability to kind of take action. I had been vegan for a really long time, but I had never kind of been invited to come try and actually make a change in the world. And um, that led me to live in Berkeley for a couple of years where I was, I was working with DXE full time. And then later to um, start my own couple of groups, Paxbana and Pro Animal Future, to try to answer some questions about how can we kind of frame the message around animals and who animals are in our society in, in a way that will really kind of bring more people along with us. And where we've ended up is this interest in trying to figure out how we can talk about animals like a systemic issue. Like this isn't something that is about, you know, your particular practices or like what you as a consumer, what kind of cosmetics you buy, but about some way that we can like organize together as kind of citizens, as civic actors to, to make the kind of change we see, we want to see. And so we're working on ballot initiatives and we're also working on, um, we're working on ballot initiatives in Denver, Colorado right now and, and doing a lot of research to kind of think about where we might like to expand and what kind of policies we might like to expand. And in that, um, I think animal testing is a really important one because it's something that people can so easily identify with. And um, I mean, we all, you know, know dogs and, and love dogs and who would vote to uh, continue dog experimentation. I know there have been some ballot initiatives in like, local ones in Wisconsin, some of which have, um, have done well and some of which have, have not. We can really have a lot of industry spending against us. And um, I think that just the truth is on our side in such a big way. So yeah, excited to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. And uh, for those listening, I'm going to target my first questions towards Michelle. Uh, for those who are not familiar with direct action everywhere. So as the international coordinator of direct action everywhere, which I'll call DXE, here on. I was hoping you could help frame our discussion by giving us an understanding of what DXE does and what your organization's core values are. Yeah, well, basically at DXE, we are trying to achieve revolutionary political change, well, and systemic change for animals in one generation. That's our mission. And I think our values very much help us supplement that mission. And I don't know if you want to hear the five 
values that we have. Should I just say them? Sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, basically I, you know, I facilitate a workshop almost every month to onboard organizers. So I kind of have this information memorized, but it also kind of manifests a lot in our everyday work. But basically our values are, we are fiercely nonviolent. Uh, we build proposal communities. We do our homework, we lead by serving, and we aim to do exceptional work for the animals. And yeah, nonviolence, I think it's a very important part of our work. And I think that we also have learned or try to constantly do research and learn from other past movements that have used nonviolence as a tool to advance many uh, like policies and laws and, and systemic change for other social justice issues. And we are basically doing uh, the same with animals. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think Paul and Eva might add more to that, but that's just like the basic one of DXC's projects that I believe you're directly involved in is called the Right to Rescue. I just learned about this myself. It's been in the news a lot lately. <laughs> um, can you describe what this is, the Right to Rescue? And can you describe why Right to Rescue has been in the news lately um, involving, I believe it's a rescue of turkeys from a factory farm? Um, and overall, why is Right to Rescue so important? Well, Right to Rescue is part of our general uh, animal bill of rights called Rosa's Law, which basically was created in 2018. And this declaration asks for five rights for animals. The, the right to not be killed, the right to a protected home and habitat, the right to be rescued from situations of distress and exploitation, the right to uh, have your interests represented by a court of law, and the right to be free, not owned. So we have been focusing a lot in the right to rescue since, well, basically since uh, almost a decade. I guess that it was more clear after these, these roses that was created that we want to keep pushing that all of these animals that are suffering, either you know, in laboratories, in factory farms, in slaughterhouses, and other exploitation facilities, are desperately needing to be rescued because they need veterinary care. They basically have been denied of everything, sometimes even basic care or basic things like water and, and food. So the turkey, well, like the turkey rescue that you're talking, there have been yeah. multiple turkey rescues. But if you're talking about the one uh, that just happened for Wayne's convic conviction, um, that is also well, I think it was like a rescue, um, very focused in saying, well, the president is pardoning these two turkeys. And yeah. 
these two DX investigators went to the same uh, factory farm and said, well, you know, there are more like animals that are suffering immensely in this place that has like millions of animals uh, just confined and in horrible conditions and just say like, you know, it's not enough to just pardon to turkeys. We need to keep exposing these uh, farms that keep selling the humane lie and that basically a lot of the people are, you know, consuming, believing that, oh, you know, they they have these certifications or the USDA does inspections and blah, blah, blah. But at the end, like all of those uh, institutions just basically cover up animal cruelty and keep protecting the profits of these um, of these huge companies. Right. It, does anybody else have anything to add to that or that pretty much sums it up? Um, I will go to Paul then and we'll really get into the the beagle issue because that's what this podcast is focused on is dogs. And um, my first question is, at what point, Paul, did you realize that DXE needed to to take action of some sort at Ridgeland Farms, um, the research breeding facility. So in other words, like how and when did you decide, okay, now's the time? Well, great question. Um, like direct action everywhere, we were founded on the principles of open rescue. And like Michelle talked about, our, the right for animals to be rescued from situations uh, of di from dis uh, distress and exploitation is uh, pretty key because like we also want to get um, animals to have the right to re be represented and so they've got to be viewed as persons and uh you know rescuing someone in court if we can um show that there was a necessity like a need to rescue somebody who wasn't a human um that could really help us advance the idea that animals are someone not something and uh, we did we did this with uh, a lot of other species early on and uh, we just felt that it was important to branch out into not just uh, animals who are caught up in the food system, but animals who are in the exploitation system of, in general. And uh, lab testing is is one of those that is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. And of course, uh, dogs and beagles specifically are very dear in general to people in the United States. I mean, dogs and cats, um, they have it really rough. Uh, so many of them get killed just for being homeless. And, um, and there's so much more to it than that. But it's also um, wild that this animal who is a member of so many people's families is is someone who is still it's just legal to just do experiments on them and not just for medical research for all kinds of things like uh product testing testing like Ridgeland uh tests has sold beagles to be tested for um, like laundry detergent where they were force-fed laundry detergent to um, see how much would make them sick and all kinds of things that aren't even advancing medical research. And of course, we know that uh, not many advances in medical research actually come from uh, the, these tests per se, certainly not in comparison to the number of animals who are killed. And uh, so when we started looking at different um, you know, breeders for um, uh, dogs who would be experimented on, um, there was a, a few who were just the most prominent by far, and, and Ridgeland is, was in the top three in the nation. And um, they also, you know, provided dogs to a lot of universities. And, um, and, and also they, they try to keep a low profile, which was 
kind of understandable. Um, the owner himself has said that this is not a thing that the public generally views as positive. And from the outside of the facility, it looks very much like there's no sign. They don't want to attract any attention. And so they, they want to keep this hidden in the darkness. And we thought it was really important to just take cameras in there and show what was happening. On March 18th, 2024, you, Paul, Eva, and another activist named Wayne Shung, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Um, who couldn't join us today, will be going on trial for rescuing three beagles from Ridgeland Farms, which you did on April 17th, 2017. So what made you want to step up and get involved with this rescue? Well, uh, I think in general, there's so many important issues out there in the world today. And I think it's really important for everybody to ask themselves, you know, what can I do to help? And I think uh, our animal friends in particular uh, have a low number of people helping them in, in um, relation to the number of them who are being exploited. And so that's one reason why I particularly like to try to use my time and energy to help animals in general. And uh, in this case specifically, I mean, I'm just a dog lover. I always grew up with a dog in my family. And just to think that um, this is happening, you know, I personally wanted to do whatever I could to kind of help. And um, it just so happens that I've also, you know, was trained for investigatory work in general. And uh, I was trained how to operate our um, virtual reality camera. And so I was, uh, that's, that's like a key reason why I was there, because I wanted to document this in full 360 degrees virtual reality, um, because historically, different industries have said, oh, you know, you investigators, you're just uh, pointing the camera at what you want to show. And you're, you know, sort of giving the audience uh, just only your view. And so the beautiful thing about virtual reality is that uh, anyone who straps those goggles on, they can turn around, look around, up, down, any direction, and just see what's really happening there. And it's kind of unfiltered. And I was really excited to, to show that to people. I think that is uh, relevant to my next question because I'm not sure if that was the YouTube fit it the YouTube footage that is publicly available, but there is a video on YouTube showing actual footage of your rescue of the three dogs, and there are literally hundreds of beagles in wire cages barking at the top of their lungs as you're running down the aisles. And the footage literally gives me chills, makes me want to cry and hug you all at the same time for doing what you did. So my, one of my questions was, what made you pick out of the hundreds of beagles, what made you pick those three beagles? But in particular, I understand there's a beagle named Julie that you would like to share her story with us yeah thanks uh like everyone in there honestly is in urgent need of rescue you know but of course uh investigators we could only ever um get so many to safety and we only have so many resources um but julie in particular so many dogs were um, exhibiting stereotypic behavior that's where they they're in a cage and they just sort of run in circles and uh, that was not uncommon at all. But uh, in Julie's case, it was so severe. Um, she was this individual who was on, a, on the bottom, bottom cage, and she was almost sprinting nonstop 
in continuous circles. The whole time we were looking at her, she would never, she would maybe stop for a split second. And, and she probably spends hours of her day this way when she was trapped in this facility. And we just thought it was so important to help her get out and get to safety and get to a healthy environment where she could no longer um, be trapped in this hell of just spinning forever. I mean, to this day, she still occasionally spins. She, for the longest time, would never turn a certain direction. She would always go the same direction to spin. And it was so sad. And, uh, but if she hadn't got out of there that day, it's, it's, I think she was just, you know, confined to madness and it was so heartbreaking and it was just really important to help her get out and, uh, and be sure that she could help, you know, get back to some sense of normalcy, something she never experienced before. Like every dog in there, their lives consist of 24 hours a day, uh, fluorescent lighting, 24 hours a day, barking, 24 hours a day, standing on cage because they have to poop and pee. And uh, they don't want to, you know, clean up all the poop and pee all the time. So they just let the poop and pee um, go between the, the bars of the cages that they stand on. And, of course, eventually the, the poop piles up in different instances and it is actually above the cage floor. And so the dogs are walking on it. And just I can only imagine what it's like for their, their paws to just never touch a solid surface, let alone grass or sand or anything that they would normally love to. And um, yeah, it was it was just really important to get her out and to help share her story too as as a, as a secondary thing. I mean, again, this is an industry that really thrives on secrecy and darkness and being hidden because the American public, in general, does not support the idea of these ineffective biomedical tests or these completely uh, needless, you know, um, commercial application tests uh, for these poor individuals. These like sweet loving beagles and it's um it's just so nefarious to me the idea that um on their website they advertise that they socialize the beagles and and i don't believe that's a lie but the scary thing is that they socialize them for the purpose that when the uh, an experimenter purchases them um, they can handle them without the dog getting defensive and trying to bite them um, because what's coming would certainly merit the dog defending themselves however they could. I'm not sure how much you're allowed to say on this next question, but um, how were you able to get into Ridgeland Farms to take the dogs? Because I'm under the impression that these research facilities are locked down pretty tight with security. So can you describe your experience in rescuing the dogs like what did it feel like to be inside Ridgeland Farms and like what were some of the the emotions that you had you know as you picked the dogs up and and ran yeah great question and I'm 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 able to answer that uh like one thing about open rescue is that we really value transparency we want to be very clear about what we do and why and what's happening uh, because just like I say, the industry thrives on darkness and secrecy. The only way to fight that is with transparency and light. So we try to make sure that when we're doing rescues, we actually document and talk about everything that we do. And uh, in this case, um, as is the norm, um, all we had to do was turn doorknobs. Uh, you might think these places are under you know, lockdown and in, in which maybe they do have policies in place, but inevitably they all, like in my whole, I've never had to, break a lock or something in all my um, investigation work. 
you just turn doorknobs until you find one that opens. And then, then you step into this facility. And uh, you first, before you step foot inside, you know, we take full precautions to um, cover ourselves head to toe, buy security gear, um, make sure that we've, you know, showered before we came to the facility, um, take every every care to make sure that we're not bringing, introducing any pathogens into the facility or bringing any out with us that could harm, you know, our dogs or friends on the outside. So uh, whatever we suit up when we go inside, on the way out, we take it off and put it in a garbage bag and it's, it'll be disposed of properly. But yeah, you just walk in and then um, personally, there's always a moment where I'm just kind of taken aback by the sheer misery like you hear from the outside you hear all the barking and the yelping and the crying and then when you get in you know i didn't necessarily expect the lights to all be on and i certainly didn't expect the level of crowding that was happening there i didn't expect dogs to just have a lot of room but i was taken back by how many you know hundreds in this one building for sure there's thousands on site and um it's just heartbreaking but then pretty quickly i tried to switch into you know, videographer mode, um, where I'm thinking about framing up shots, um, trying to capture as much as I can so we can show people the full picture of what's really happening inside there. Because, um, you know, Ridgeland would never open up their doors and invite the public to view what's actually happening. My next question is actually for Eva. And I believe you said you were directly involved in caring for the dogs after you guys got those three out of there. And so how did the dogs actually handle this rescue? And what was it like to take care of them in the aftermath? I can, I mean, these dogs are not handled a lot in a kind way, probably. And so I'm just curious, you know, how did they behave? And then um, what was your own experience there? Yeah, I think Paul mentioned that Julie um, have has a long recovery, kind of still, and is still having effects from from her her life in a cage. Um, but all three dogs really had much have much very very different personalities from each other. Um, there's one of one of the adults, Anna, is really just the sweetest dog I've ever met. I mean, and it really just breaks your heart how forgiving and resilient she is, even after. Kind of I think something like six years she lived in in a cage um you know like you said only being handled every so often and and still she'll just kind of walk up to you and just like put her head in in your lap and just look up at you and i mean she's just she's really just the sweetest dog um the other the other adult was a little bit more um standoffish was a little bit more distrustful with with great reason um she you know learned humans were not the not the most safe um, to be around and or didn't really learn much about humans at all kind of living in a in a cage and i think to this day julie um she really likes wayne she's she's very sweet to wayne and and to me she she always barks at me when i when i come over she's it if i if i kind of sit on the floor for a while and and don't look at her she'll sort of eventually kind of warm up let me pet her a little bit but she's still quite quite standoffish. We don't see her kind of around. She doesn't really go out into the, into the world, into like community events very often. Cause she's not very, um, doesn't, yeah, doesn't do well with a whole bunch of people. Um, and you know, just like, just like humans, these dogs have varied personalities. They're, they're all different from each other. They have kind of different 
resiliences and the ability to ability to heal and all of them are, are still living great lives outside of that place and with families who are treating them like the individuals that they deserve to be to be seen as and treated as this wasn't one of the questions but were they young dogs like were they prepped to be sold for research so they were on the younger side when you guys got them so julie was i think about a year old and i believe julie was on her way to be she she was going to be experimented on um the other two adults were like six and seven i believe and they and we, we know that from the the court discovery they you know do keep records and they eventually did realize that these dogs were were gone um Strangely, at first, they only noticed the two dogs were gone, and then later they came out and said, oh, actually, it's three. And so we know we know their ages and that they were being used for breeding. Um, interesting thing, though, is that you would think that, okay, if they're being used for breeding, then maybe they just have a couple more years, and then they'll, I don't know, be adopted out. That's not true. Um, right. In the kind of research around this case, we've learned that older dogs are, are quite prized as dogs used for research. And so, so much so that there are some states in the United, in, in the U.S. where we're not, um, animal shelters are not allowed to euthanize senior dogs without first offering them up to animal researchers for, for use in research. So this, um, you know, it's not just that some, some individuals are kind of born for research and that's the only life they know. It's that, you know, your, your family dog, if you move or something, have to, have to give them up, could be used in research. That's awful. Yeah. So this is a question for Eva and Paul, or whoever wants to talk about it. Both of you and Wayne are facing felony burglary and felony theft charges. And I know people listening, including myself, would be pretty nervous about facing these charges. So how are you coping day to day and preparing yourself for this trial that's coming up in March? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I take everything in stride. Um, it's, uh, it's of course, um, very serious. Um, you know, I, I went to trial in Utah, um, for similar felony charges, uh, relating to the rescue of two sick and injured baby piglets and was fully acquitted. Um, but before I went, I essentially, you know, quote unquote, moved out of my, you know, my room. Like I, I packed up all my things. I paid my rent one last time, told my landlord, hey, I might not come back from trial. And um, and if so, like, you know, my friend's going to come by and pick up my stuff and, you know, put it in storage. And so I, I try to just do what I need to do to prepare for whatever happens. Um, but mostly just prepare to um, put on our best effort at trial and and help help the uh, jurors or potential jurors like hear as much information as is as, as, as relevant and important for them to hear and allow them to decide my fate essentially, you know, and, um, and it worked out really well in Utah. And then recently um, it didn't work out that way. And my friend Wayne Chung, my co-defendant um, was sentenced to 90 days in jail for um, helping uh, sick and injured chickens and ducks um, find freedom. And uh, in that case, I don't believe that the jurors had the adequate information to make the right decision. Uh, the judge, it was a farm county, and the judge was very much, um, you know, I think in favor of, of the industry and didn't allow in a lot of relevant information, in my opinion. Um, but uh, I think I'm, I'm uh, 
I'm hopeful that uh, we'll have a better experience in, in court in Madison. And um, I'm going to assume the best of the judge and assume that we'll get a fair trial. And I can't, I can't guarantee that's what will happen. But um, it's really easy when you're supported by a network like Direct Action Everywhere and uh, the animal rights movement in the whole. Uh, it's just doing this is just so much more doable when you just know you have a lot of people behind you. Um, jail is such a scary place and prison is a scary place and so dangerous. And so many people in there don't have a support system on the outside whatsoever. They're really on their own. They don't have access to good attorneys to help them appeal or get out or get whatever they need. And I know I'll have all that support. And so I'm so privileged to be in the situation where I can do this and fight and try to show um, what's right and, and gain support for animals. And, and also know I'll be so, so supported in that effort. So I'm, I'm just excited is my overwhelming emotion. And I don't spend too much time worrying about like what it'll be like in prison. I try to prepare myself for understanding, you know, the possibilities. And then once the gavel bangs and if it's a, a, you know, conviction, then I'll start to, you know, factor all that stuff in and maybe be very scared. Um, but until then, I don't think it, it benefits me or anybody else to really worry about it too much. And luckily I'm able to do that. I know some people would are overcome by anxiety. Um, so yeah, I, I just do my research. I was I was nervous because in Utah the prison population is so so uh, heavily influenced by white supremacist gangs, and um, from what I understand about uh, Madison, Wisconsin, it won't be the same kind of level of gang politics that I'll have to be dealing with. The physical building, for instance, the Dane County Jail is is you know in the sheriff's words, like one of the worst in the nation in terms of like the building itself and how horrible the conditions are. They really want to build a new, a new jail. And um, so I'm not looking forward to that if I, if I go there, but I'm not, I'm not worrying about it either. I'm just thinking about, you know, what can we do to try to give the jury the, all the information they can, they can use to work with and hopefully getting a good outcome. And I hope that outcome, whatever it is, be it conviction or acquittal, um, one that ultimately helps the animals, and in this case, you know, dogs who are experimented on in particular. Eva, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, um, I think it's a, a, you know, valid question. Like, of course, of course, it's scary to be facing felonies. Like, there's real prison time that's that's associated with with felonies, and we're talking not just one but two. Um, and it's something that. Um, I think really just needs to needs to be done and to have the privilege of getting to have this conversation in the, in a court of law in this venue that has all of this legitimacy to it in this you know that everything is kind of recorded in this very um in in, in this yeah, very legitimate way um i'm also really excited to to have that conversation because i mean we're so clearly in the right we i think it would be very difficult to actually argue that that any of us did anything wrong in, in regards to, to caring for these dogs. And I'm excited to have that conversation. Um, and like, it is difficult. It's, it's, it's difficult to, um, yeah, to know this possibility is coming to, to have things come up that are like plans for April. And you say, Oh, I'm not sure if I can, not sure if I can make that um, to, you know, have my, my family is, is so worried. Um, and and then on top of all of this, um, like Paul mentioned, our our co-defendant Wayne Chung was just convicted 
of for for rescuing animals in Sonoma County, California. And as part of that, um, a sentence for that, he spent time in jail, and he's also barred from contacting about a dozen people who he's he's closest to for the next two years, which includes Paul. And so as we're preparing for a trial, as we're preparing to to mobilize a lot of people to come come support us and come support the dogs, there's this communication barrier between Wayne, our co-defendant, and and Paul and a lot of the people who are involved in the network who are going to be there to to support us. So there's a lot of open questions about kind of how it's all going to work and how it's I mean it's a public it's a public trial. Um, they they are co-defendants. They have to be in the same room. And in terms of preparation and um, mobilization, and it's it's going to be really difficult. So I think I know the answer to this this next question. If you had to do it all again, would you still rescue those three beagles? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Of, of course, there's nothing that I would I would do differently. Um, and I mean, knowing that they, it was it was years ago. It was it was such a long time ago that this happened, and they're still safe. They're still they're they're okay, and they've had all of this time to to live with families. Um, and I know that you know for them that's that's everything. That's their that's their life. And whatever this is going to be, it could it's still only going to be a fraction of ours. I I don't know if you know it. You probably do, but you have a cheering squad out there full of people who admire your courage and your work and what you did. Um, I'm one of those people for sure. And there's a saying, saving one dog will not change the world, but surely for that one dog, the world would change forever. So that's so true in this case for those three beagles. And on Saturday, I don't know if the date is still March 23rd, but there will be a peaceful protest in support of you called the Dog Defenders March in Madison, Wisconsin. So what do you hope this whole chain of events will accomplish in the bigger scheme of things when it comes to dogs being bred and used cruelly for research? Yeah, I hope that more people will have their attention on this, that more people will learn that dogs are being used for research and that that use is completely unnecessary and um, frankly, like anti-scientific. Um, I, I hope that more people will start to think about animals and, and who they who they are in society and feel some kind of empowerment to to do some to do something to try to change the way that our society is relating to to dogs and to, to all animals. Yeah, I love knowing that uh, Anna and Lucy, you know, will no longer be forced to have. 1.7 litters per year um, that can be then sold into cruel experiments so that Ridgeland Farms can keep making millions of dollars in revenue every year. And I love knowing that Julie won't be force-fed laundry detergent. And um, But if, uh, we, if we had just rescued them and not shared their stories, they would still have that, that outcome. And so, yeah, I hope the bigger thing is that this helps people be aware and start talking and you mentioned the march. I hope that's an opportunity for people to physically come together, get connected, because each of us can only do so much on our own. But when we're a part of an organization with locally or wherever, you know, we can pull our resources, pull our skills and our talents, and then we can finally take on some of these massive, you know, million dollar companies like Redstone Farms and the industry itself. 
And um, I think that the industry is afraid of that. And I think that's for good reason. And so I fully expect them to do whatever they can to try to hurt us in our trials and, and moving forward so they can keep hurting more dogs uh, for profit. And I just really hope that our work can help um, turn that around a little bit, you know. You know, some of my greatest heroes are just uh, regular people with big hearts who want to do the right thing. You know, they're not famous. They're not maybe anybody that you would know in the press. So that's what you guys are to me, just definitely my heroes. So, <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you guys want to share before we close? I wanted well, I'll, to I'll just say thank you. I'll see you. Go ahead, Michelle. Sorry. Well, I just wanted to add that I think it would be also awesome to get more press coverage uh, about this trial. Because I feel that all these trials have had a huge opportunity to get more people talking about, hey, should people like regular citizens face decades or years in prison just for rescuing these animals that are clearly in so much need and that are no different than other animals that might be living with us or that we feel connected with. So, um, yeah, it would be amazing to see more people coming to the trial too. And, you know, you don't have to be vegan to come, come like join our actions. That's also another important thing. Like if you somehow just think like, yeah, animals deserve rights and they should not be confined in these places and these places shouldn't be, you know, profiting and, and lying to us, then I hope people join us. And the first day is going to be the 15th, not the 18th anymore. So there's also going to be, you know, maybe other changes, but we will keep people posted about them. And before, before Paul answers that this last question, if someone wants to get involved with DXD, what's the best way to reach you? If they want to, they're like, oh my gosh, I, I really want to be a part of what you guys are doing. How do they reach out to you? Well, I think email is a good way. We basically have in our website, like we have a section there for like take action for people. And there's many asks there, like signing petitions, calling the DA district attorney, asking like, why are you putting all like these efforts in prosecuting people, uh, you know, exposing animal cruelty than these forums that are inflicting this cruelty as, I don't know, many other things. So I think a good start will be going to our website, directactioneverywhere.com. And you can also email, like email me personally if you are interested in organizing in, in other parts of the world or outside the Bay Area. But I don't know. Um, Paul, do you think okay. about other ways? Um, I mean, should we mention uh, dxc.io slash Ridgeland? Yeah, no. Uh, well, if you go to dxc.io slash reachland, that will take you to a form to register for the trial convergence. So if you're thinking, even if you're not super sure, I encourage you to register because then from there, I will have your contact information and I will be, you know, emailing you and just indirect contact about any changes or things related to the trial. And my email, too, is michelle at dxc.io. 
if you also want to email me. So that's March 15th through the 24th in Madison, Wisconsin, dxc.io slash Ridgeland, which is R-I-D-G-L-A-N. And Paul, was there anything you wanted to say? Yeah, I was just going to thank you for your kind words and your support and everybody in your audience listening. Um, that term hero, to me, I, I always think like a hero is somebody who can do something on all by themselves, you know, and that is not us whatsoever. Um, myself, Wayne, Eva, the only reason we were able to do this is because we had such a strong network of support behind us, people doing research, people doing legal work now that we need help with that, and um, people doing press work to get the word out. Uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, wrote a, a really amazing story about this uh, for The Intercept. You could check that out, too. Um, but I, I think of, when I think of heroes in the situation, I think uh, Anna, Julie, and Lucy and their caretakers are, are the real heroes. Um, but we are a part of an amazing team and we want that team to be bigger and better all the time. So yeah, thanks for asking how people can get plugged in. Definitely go to the website and, and uh, check out the Take Action page. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me, your host, Ellie Hansen, for this latest episode of Dog Research Exposed. We are an independent nonprofit organization dedicated to using communication, education, and collaboration to end the cruel use of dogs for chemical and biomedical research. And we need your help to spread the word. We rely on donations to bring this podcast to larger audiences around the world. So please consider making a donation today at dogresearchexposed.com.